The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So this is our last class, week eight of our Buddhist studies class on refuge. We'll have small groups later tonight. Maybe I'll just mention now that the January course, I believe it begins possibly the first Monday in January. Forget if New Year's is on Tuesday. Is that right? If that's the case, if New Year's is on Tuesday, then it will begin that first Monday, the 7th. And we'll do the five faculties, just so you know. I don't think Gabe has set up the registration yet, but it will be soon. Five faculties, um, a well-known map that the Buddha, that we use in the Buddhist tradition, faith, and I thought it would be nice to do it after spending the fall on refuge and faith. So it's faith, supporting effort, supporting, supporting the continuity of awareness, supporting samadhi, supporting wisdom. Wisdom deepens faith. So this is kind of an engine of awakening, the five faculties used quite often um, as a teaching map in our tradition. So that's what we'll do in January. I'll be on retreat all of February with Venerable Analio, this uh, wonderful German monk from who studied a lot for a long time in Sri Lanka and at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts. So, And then we'll come back, and I think what we'll do in March and maybe into April are the three unwholesome roots of greed, anger, and delusion. So that's just a little highlight of what's coming our way. So a couple things to, I mentioned last week, you know, in terms of the small group sharing, and I'll bring up some other topics that might feel appropriate for you to talk about in your small groups. But one thing I mentioned last week is, for homework in a sense, is to notice sangha, just as you're living your day. So maybe you noticed yourself just those wholesome intentions, right? Those wholesome motivations of generosity, of letting go, of contentment. So that's that first wholesome intention. That's what Sangha is. It's that movement of goodness that we call generosity, we call kindness, we call this deep value of not harming or compassion. So just what does that look like in your life, expressed through your mind and body, what did you see it express as it as expressed through somebody else's life, somebody else's body and mind, in moments of your life? I thought another interesting thing to talk about in your small groups is your mind, your heart's relationship to devotional energy, and we talked about this I think early on in the course, but it's a very relevant, important, I guess we could say emotional quality of the heart and mind. Some of you, it will be a more predominant part of your personality. Other people, not so much. But I'm not actually sure that's true. I think maybe what might be more true is some people that what we call devotional energy gets expressed in ways that we would classic, classically call devotional energy. And other people, you have the same amount of devotional energy or that same sort of tendency, emotional tendency, but maybe it's masked 
in some way, you know, because of your conditioning. It wasn't cool to let it, you know, express itself. You don't put your forehead down on the floor, for example, or have a statue that you put flowers next to or something like that. But that doesn't mean this quality of the heart that we call devotion, really falling in love, right? It, you know, it has connotations of gratitude and appreciation and delight. We're so thankful, you know, to have, we feel like it's been a gift. We feel like we've received a special gift and, you know, what can I do to, you know, be, be uh, the recipient of this gift? What, you know, how can I live up to this thing that has shown up in my life? And the reason we want to tap into it is we get a lot of energy with devotional, with devotion, right? It allows us to get up in the morning and sit or read, you know, get through your Dharma book and reflect on what the teacher is teaching in the book you're reading or come over to Common Ground or, you know, whatever you do, meet with your small groups, your study groups or whatever you do to, you know, take your practice into your life. It gives you faith to show up in the difficult places. And this is especially okay and important in the beginning. I mean, there's shadows to everything. So there's shadows to devotional energy too, right? Like we can really like the feeling of being devoted and feeling like we found something special. And then we can get really dependent on nobody you know, somehow challenging what we think is really special. Like somebody saying, no, no, that may be special, but I have something even more special. My special thing is bigger than your special thing. (laughs) So, you know, one thing to share in the small groups and to reflect on now is just remembering times in your life where you really felt like, you know, maybe it's not so much in our culture, though, being a Catholic, there's definitely a little bit of the kneeling down. But like some equivalent of like, I'd be happy to put my head down on the floor for this. You know, I'm so happy, so grateful, feel so privileged, feel so devoted that I'm, I feel moved to express that devotion in some way, you know, whatever would be culturally appropriate in your life, the way you were conditioned. So just to think about moments when you felt that way, so grateful to a friend, so grateful to some teaching that was useful. And you don't care, you know, wouldn't care if other people didn't get it, like your heart's just moved, like that movement of the heart. I think it was in the sutta somewhere where the Buddha says gratitude is one of the most rare of emotions. And then, so that that's just the first stage of devotional energy, right? And then it matures into like becoming a disciple, like being committed, okay, you've shown up in my life, whatever it is that's sort of evoking this devotional energy, so now I'm going to live true to you. I'm going to like listen, 
study, would you, you know, kind of figure out, like, why is my heart so moved by whatever has shown up in my life? And I'm going to take something out of it and I'm going to be devoted to it. I'm going to operationalize the devotional love by doing something with it, right? So in the sort of tradition, you might call that being a disciple, being a student, willing to learn, willing to have some humility so that we can learn. And then that matures, you know, when we're a good student for a while, then we start to feel like some competence, like we're the mind, the heart, our life, the activity of our life is in some way grounded. Like we start to feel um, like that thing, that practice, that study, those ideas that we've then studied and reflected on and begun to integrate, that somehow they've taken root in the mind, in the heart. They've become part of who we are, right? And we feel grounded, less in need of the statue or the teacher or the temple or the, you know, whatever it is, and more the sense of the refuge having been internalized in some way. What we're grateful for is now we see operating, being expressed in our own life. Not always, of course. I mean, we can still be a jerk and we can still, you know, whatever, not be so skillful. But in moments, we see something's afoot and we really love it. And then the sort of fourth stage is this total surrender, right? It's where it's like the uh, computer virus, right? So at this point, what we've taken in, right, initially it was just we fell in love with it. It was somewhat superficial. It's like, you know, my life was a desert and then you showed up and you brought some clarity and I'm, you know, I just went head over hills. I'm so grateful. Buddhist teachings are the best or whatever it was. You know, this teacher is the best. This place is the best. The community at Camagran is the best. So the object is, you know, the initial object is relatively unimportant. The important thing is that gets us in the door, you know, to the second stage where we become a student. Okay, now what was it that bedazzled me here? What is it that I could kind of dig in? You know, what is it about this community, this teacher, these teachings, this place that I'm attracted to that sort of has moved my heart? Oh yeah, they say, you know, open to the present moment or something. You know, we become a student of that. And then it becomes part of who we are. And then it, it becomes the dominant frame, right? It really like takes over the heart and mind. It's completely infected, contaminated. I mean, to put it in negative terms, but, right? It's like, it's really blossomed. We become, you know, we literally become more and more the three refuges, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, right? Walking, talking, refuge. And so that's the full expression of this, um, you know, this devotional energy. In the years after the Buddha, they, they would tag something on to the three refuges, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. They would say things like, from today onwards, right? So it's like, and remember the nice thing about the refuges 
you can screw up and you just take the refuges again and again and again and again. And some of us, every morning, <laughs> taking the refuges again and again and doing the precepts again and again because it's like we're aiming. We're aiming the mind, we're aiming the life, we're aiming the heart in a direction. We're not okay just letting our life be blown around by the different cultural winds, you know, superficiality, consumerism, you know, this and that. I mean, a lot of what's moving in our culture is not something we want to be infected by. So we we have this counterweight, right? We're aiming in a different direction. And so there's this real sense of starting over. It doesn't matter. We're always, we always have permission to do the next chapter. It doesn't matter how many unskillful chapters have been written in our lives. From today onwards, you know, when we take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and then they tag on, thus may you know me. Right? So we, it's like that asking, using community. It's like, okay, whoever I've been, however I've acted, however I've used my life, but from today onward, you know, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, I'm devoted to Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, or whatever, translate that, you know, in words that actually work for you. If the Pali words don't work, fine. You know, I take refuge. I'm devoted to being awake, not asleep, not distracted. I'm devoted to being connected. I'm devoted to being free. I'm devoted to being good. I'm not just going to do lip service. I see this as like a path to real safety. Thus may you know me. So please pay attention to what you see. You know, May you see me in that way. And if you don't, let me know. <laughs> Mirror back. Like, oh, Mark. Didn't look like Buddha Dhamma Sangha. <laughs> no, it looked like something else. What's going on here? I mean, that's the great thing about being in community. It's not easy being in community. It's not easy like having a close friend whose practice you really respect. Because even a lot of times they don't even need to say anything. It's like it's like at common ground. People really generally behave themselves, right? I mean, at least in the space. I know we are not all perfect, always perfect out there. But there's this place and the people in this place remind us of what has moved our heart, what we're devoted to, what we're studying, what we're becoming, right? There's something, right? And so, thus may you know me. I mean, again, that's a little formal, but in your own way, when you take refuge, remember from this day on, don't worry about the past. Now, from this, at this moment, from this point forward, this is how I'm aiming my mind, right? Mm -hmm. Toward freedom, toward goodness. And have a friend. Let them know. Thus may you know me. Please, this is important. Help me, right? Let me know when you see me making choices that's not in this direction because this is the direction I want to go. I mean, there's more and more study these days in sort of Western 
psychology circles about how hard it is to change habits once they've been established. But I found, and I think the research points this out, the easiest way to change, change entrenched habits is to hang around people with the habits you want. And the easiest way to continue the bad habits you have is to hang around people who have those same bad habits. Right? It's really not easy to change your habits if we're not being reminded by people around us. I like this. Um, so, so that's one whole thing you might share. It's just your relationship to devotional energy. So, moments of seeing sangha, you know what that means to you in yourself, around you, and other people. Um, just your heart, your minds, your life's relationship to, devo- to devotional energy. How that's supported you. Maybe how it's gone astray at times where you fell in love with something you. <laughs> Then later you felt betrayed, right? There's, I'll talk if we have time about some of the shadows with refuge. And now I want to talk about um, Ajahn Sumero in, I think, one of his... Uh, oh, this is a different book, actually. This is from his book, Now is the Knowing. I, I was thinking it was from another book. Um, but anyway, he's talking about refuge in this small book, Now is the Knowing. You can get it online. And he talks about the Buddha's... Refuges, especially the refuge of Dhamma, the way it is, things as they are, as a very mature, impersonal kind of refuge. It's not easy to personalize. I mean, we can kind of personalize Buddha, you know, somebody who's free, the image of somebody being free. But Dhamma is really here and now, right? It's always changing. It's not like, it's not easy to sort of create a picture in our mind about Dhamma, the way it is. I mean, what would the image be for like opening or being aware or being sensitive? I mean, I'm sure you could, but... And he, here's what he says about it. <clears throat> so I'm going to skip a little. He, earlier he was talking about, you know, wanting the... And you see this in religious tradition, sort of the the great mother, the great father in the sky, who's really the perfect parent, and they're our savior in a way, the sort of archetypal parent, mom, dad, who really has our back, who's really there for us. So there's a lot of this in the tradition, including in Buddhism. You'll find it in different places in Buddhism as well. But in particular, Dhamma, and, and just generally with all three of the refuges, as they mature, it becomes not so personal, right? Because it, it has to become internal. It can't be external. So Ajahn Sumedho writes here in this book, we don't need to take refuge in mother or father again, someone to protect us and love us and say, I love you no matter what you do. Everything is going to be all right. And pat us on the head. <laughs> the Buddha Dhamma... <clears throat> is a very maturing refuge. It is a religious practice that is complete sanity or maturity in which we are no longer seeking a mother or father because we don't need to become anything anymore. We don't need to be loved 
or protected by anyone anymore. We don't need, oops, because we can love and protect others. And that is all that is important, right? And it's sort of, it's a real, like, this religious idea of being the child that needs to be saved or protected versus discovering, this is what I meant too about, you know, once we've studied and then we start to be grounded and then fully surrendered, then our life becomes this activity of generosity and goodness, right? It's like, that's what we do with our life. We give it away. We do what's next. We become a force for good and wisdom. So I misread that. Let me just say that again. We don't need to be loved or protected by anyone anymore because we can love and protect others. And that is all that is important. We no longer have to ask or demand things from others. Whether it is from other people or even some deity or force that we feel is separate from us and has to be prayed to and asked for guidance. We give up all our attempts to conceive Dhamma as being this or that or anything at all and let go of our desire to have a personal relationship with the truth. We have to be the truth here and now. Being that truth, taking that refuge, calls for an immediate awakening, for being wise now, being Buddha, being Dhamma in the present. And Sangha too. Right? It, Sangha is what arises when Buddha knows Dhamma, when the heart, the mind that's free, that's awake, that's empty of neurotic, self-centered drama, meets the way it is, then what would be in the way of goodness moving, generous, generous action, kind action, compassion action? What, what would actually stop that from moving? So this is an interesting thing, you know, not necessarily in the small group tonight, but it could be, but just generally with your Dharma friends about this maturing, you know, all of us in our own ways, still today, certainly in the past, had this childlike religious response in our lives. You know, somebody saved me, basically. Some version of, I want to be, I need your help. Right? We do this with our friends sometimes when we're just, you know, and it, we don't need to be embarrassed about this. Like, if that happens again and you feel like a child crying out for help, that's fine. Just let it be Buddha knowing Dhamma. Right? So it's not about like pretending like or trying to fake it or something. It's just understanding the whole range of our humanity. Sometimes we are that child who wants a wise parent to hold us, and that's okay. But we want to notice the other end when we're, we feel comfortable being the universal mother, you know, for the friend or the cat or the moment, you know, or the universal father. We know we're not like we're capable of inhabiting that space because we're not afraid. It's not even personal. It's like the life, this mind and body, it's just that's what the moment is asking from us. And there's nobody afraid to do what the moment's asking us to do. 
So we just kind of show up. And so in your small groups, you can talk about sometimes being the child looking to be saved, but other moments in your life really talking about that kind of integration of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, being really intimate, Buddha knowing Dhamma, and really being that fierce presence and doing what needed to be done in the moment, speaking up, saying what needed to be said, or comforting somebody in a way that just was just right in that moment. Just And there was no trace. That's the other sort of aspect of this is that nothing was left over. It felt really clean afterward. Didn't need somebody to acknowledge how wonderful you were in that. Not that people wouldn't acknowledge that. They might, and that's okay too. But there wasn't, it wasn't sticky in that way. And there's a, you know, as many of you know, there's such an emphasis, especially in Theravada Buddhism, maybe in the other traditions I'm just not as familiar, but about self-reliance, independence. And often the Buddha would say in the suttas, you know, that after a while, some nun, monk, practitioner, the Buddha would then acknowledge this person has now become independent in the teachings, right? That they've integrated, the insight has um, developed to the point that either they already have done the work that needs to be done or they have their own internal compass. They understand the path and it's just a matter of time before the path is complete. And so this uh, is a famous um, passage near uh, the time of the Buddha's death. He's talking to Ananda. Some of you know the story where he ate some food. Uh, they're not exactly sure, but they think maybe it was some sort of, like a, what do they call it, a pate or something, some meat dish. You know, remember the monks uh, were supposed to receive any food that was given, including meat. So they weren't officially vegetarians. They couldn't accept meat if uh, in the in the sort of early rules for the nuns and monks. They couldn't receive meat if they thought the layperson was giving it because they thought they liked meat. But if often, you know, the lay people would just serve what they had. And so if they were serving meat, the nuns and monks were just to receive whatever was given to them. So any, this was given to the Buddha. He told the other monks, though, don't take any of this. He ate it. Who knows? You know, and this is, you know, it could be just a story. But anyway, it's an interesting story. And he got really sick and deathly ill for a long time. And then he rallied, you know, and this is Ananda, after the Buddha had rallied from this very intense illness. And he's in his mid-80s at this point. Then the Buddha, having recovered from his illness, as soon as he felt better, went outside and sat on a prepared seat in front of his dwelling. And then Venerable Ananda, right, his attendant, came to him, saluted him, sat down to one side and said, Sir, I have seen you in comfort and I have seen you patient, patiently enduring. And my body was like a drunkard's. I lost my bearings and things were unclear to me because of your sickness. Right? So you can imagine this is Ananda's often the sort of fall guy for a lot of these teachings. Right? So he was a little distraught, just couldn't handle the Buddha being really sick. He goes on and says, Ananda says, the only thing that was some comfort to me 
was the thought that you would you will not attain final nibbana, meaning the liberation upon death, when the Buddha drops the body, the body is dropped, until you have made some statement about the order of monks, right? So this is like sort of funny. It's like, don't leave us, you know, and if you are going to leave us, tell us what to do, you know. So here's what the Buddha says in response. But Ananda, what does the order of monks expect of me? I have taught the Dhamma, Ananda, making no inner and outer. Right, so that means he doesn't hold anything back in the teachings. He just, like, so this is different than some of maybe the later traditions. Well, first we'll give you these instructions, but it's just like you put it out there. Maybe you won't understand everything, but everything's available. The teachings are available. The Tathagata, that's the word the Buddha uses to refer to himself, one thus gone. The Tathagata has no features fist in respect to the teachings. It doesn't hide anything. If there is anyone who thinks I shall take charge of the order or the order should refer to me, let him make some statement about the order. But the Tathagata does not think in such terms. So why should the Tathagata make a statement about the order? Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, just in terms of our own, you know, I, I think about this too, just even at Common Ground as we sort of plan long-term for leadership development at the center and how things might unfold. You know, to really understand that everything is a natural system and maybe, like, we don't have to be tight like if we're doing our work all along, we're, create, we're kind of creating, supporting a really healthy system. So maybe the healthy system knows what it's doing. Whether we're talking about ourselves or groups of us or even the wider. Anyway, it's just an interesting point here. And then this is the important piece I wanted to read before we break into small groups. Ananda, I am... I am now old, worn out, venerable, one who has traversed life's path. I have reached the term of life, which is 80. Just as an old card is made to go by being held together with straps, so the Tathagata's body is kept going by being strapped up. It is only when the Tathagata withdraws his attention from outward signs, right, goes into deep, absorption, deep state of concentration, and by the cessation of certain feelings, enters into the signless concentration of mind that his body knows comfort. As long as I'm awake with conditions as they are, the body hurts. You know, I only get some relief when I go into a deep state of concentration. Therefore, Ananda, you should live as islands unto yourselves, be your own refuge, with no one else as your refuge, with the Dhamma as an island, with the Dhamma as your refuge, and no other refuge. And how does a practitioner live as an island unto oneself, with no other refuge? Here, Ananda, a practitioner abides, contemplating body as body, earnestly, clearly aware, mindful, having put away all hankering and fretting for the world, and likewise with regard to feelings, 
mind and mind objects. That, Ananda, is how a person, a practitioner, lives as an island unto oneself, with no other refuge. And those who now in my time or afterwards live thus, they will become the highest if they are desirous of learning. So the last thing I thought you might mention is just, you know, the inevitable shadows with refuge practice. And we've mentioned them over the weeks, discussed them already together. You know, one obvious thing, and you see it all the time, even in our own life, you know, and it's related to this childlike mentality we have some of the time where we get really under the spell of charisma, power, beauty, big temples, people with bright auras, right? As if their charisma, their wisdom, their love, is going to, I mean, it doesn't mean that having a good teacher, you know, it would be really nice to have a, an awakened teacher <laughs> here, you know, to have a Buddha here, wouldn't that be nice? But to somehow mistakenly think that somebody's wisdom can do the work for us, that's the mistake. Or because there's a beautiful building, or there's some elegance. I remember once, uh, this is back in the, late 80s, and we used this retreat center in the Catskills for some of our retreats, and it was a beautiful Zendo, the New York Zendo, um, New York City Zendo had this property, and they built this kind of authentic uh, Zendo up in the beautiful forest uh, along this lake, and uh, we would use, they had this other building that we would use for our retreats, but we would go visit, and you know, in this uh, tradition, Zen tradition, there's just so much formality and so much beauty to the ritual. And just everything is thought out. Everything is sort of, you know, just the kind of attention to detail. And even the way they would take all the leftover food from the meal and give it to the creatures in the woods. And it was like, uh, I noticed in my mind, like, you know, Well, they must know what they're doing because they're so together. Their costumes are together. Their building is together. The way they sit looks together. You know, like Zen people can sit, you know, those who have the body for it at least. Everything just seemed really together. Of course, <laughs> they were very neurotic once you got to know. I got to know some of them. <laughs> But you know how it is that we get impressed with outward form. So that's one of the shadows of refuge is we go for the shiny thing instead of spending some time and really see what feels right deep in the heart, what feels trustworthy deep in the heart. We mistake things that seem solid for refuge into, instead of like uh, a refuge that's okay with things falling apart with no ground, right? So something that's fixed versus an understanding that's okay with no ground. Mm-hmm. 
the shadow too is uh, having a lot of faith in helplessness, like the sort of opposite of refuge. Like we can be so have such a strong belief in nihilism, and like all the different betrayals we had. Like maybe you had a bad relationship and a bad breakup, and then we can have so much confidence that love doesn't work, you know, or you know, intimate relationships don't work. And it's the same thing, you know, maybe you got involved in some spiritual practices that somehow you felt burnt by. And then we can just, it's just like more convenient to think everything's corrupt because some of it is corrupt, you know, they're just after money or they're, who knows what they're after. But clearly, you know, there's some messy places to be involved in. But that leap, that therefore, it's like because we want certainty, we're even willing to have certainty that nothing works because it feels like ground. You know, it's like at least I know you guys are all deluded, but I know. I, I pick this up sometimes listening to people who, uh, you know, call themselves atheists. Not all people, but some people who are atheists seem just as fundamental as people who have a more traditional religious belief, you know, in Islam or Christianity or Buddhism or, you know, any of these more traditional forms where people can have really fixed ideas, be, you know, holding tight. So that's another thing you might share in your small groups. But I need to leave it here so we have time for the small groups. And uh, maybe, why don't we count by 22? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.